This podcast is going to be great. This podcast is going to be great. I'm a great podcaster. I'm a great podcaster. Hello and welcome to the Shmuel Tenenhaus podcast. My name is Shmuel Tenenhaus, and you just heard me doing some affirmations about my podcast. It's so nice to have a podcast, and thank you so much for being here. We have a whole lot to cover here today. The first thing is, I want to start off with some anecdotes about me and my podcast, the Shmuel Tendenhaus podcast. Last Shabbos, I was in a different shul, and a woman was there, and she told me that she listens to my podcast while she is cooking in her kitchen. And that is very lovely. And I'm happy that somebody is listening to the podcast. But personally, I would prefer if this person or anybody else wasn't multitasking and they would give this podcast the proper respect that it deserves and they would just turn off their phones and sit on the couch, draw the shades, turn the lights off, and listen to the podcast. But I do understand that people have lives to carry on. So if you're driving in your car while you're listening to the podcast right now or If you're jogging or taking a bath or you're jogging in your bath, that's totally okay. I'm fine with it. Just keep on listening. Somebody else in Shul uh, one morning this week told me that my podcast makes him smile. He never said he listened to it, just that my podcast makes him smile. But if I can make somebody smile just by having a podcast, I'm happy to do it. Meanwhile, listeners to my podcast are exploding. I'm investing in new servers. I'm spinning up new instances on AWS, even though I don't know what spinning up new servers on AWS actually means, but it sounds very sophisticated. So on this show, the ninth show, in the second and a half season of the Shmuel Tenenhaus podcast, we have a special guest. He will be on on the second half of the show. His name is Adam Smith. He is the former CEO of a cannabis company called Avitas, which was acquired by a company called Holistic Industries. I believe Adam is the chief product officer there. And if I got that wrong, I'm so sorry to you, Adam, Holistic Holistic Industries, and everybody else who's listening uh, as a whole. It's a great interview. I do want to caution, at some point in time of the interview, an F-bomb has dropped. So if you are listening this, to this podcast with kids in the car, please make sure when the F-bomb is dropped to turn the volume up as much as possible because the reality is your kids are going to hear these words anyways once they get immersed in society and better they hear it from the Shmuel Tenenhaus podcast than for them to pick it up on the street. I want to talk about a bunch of things that are on my mind. The first thing is uh, the show that I go to has brewed coffee. We don't mess around with instant, the coffee is brewed. It's great coffee. It's legit. Uh, The thing is that it's just a little too good. And the problem is that these days when I'm waking up to go to shul in the morning, uh, it's not the religion that is pulling me into shul. It's starting to be just the caffeine, uh, how good the coffee is there and why I continue to go there and why I'm even thinking of going to Minchamarev in the evening if there's still any coffee there. Another thing that I started to notice is that 
while I'm doing the Amida, I'm facing east, but somehow in middle, my body starts automatically turning and somewhere in the middle, I am now praying directly facing the urn. There's a little of a problem right over here. If you do run a synagogue and you are trying to increase membership, I do think that caffeine is a great place to start because, again, people will have an itch to come to your house of worship with not even realizing that deep down it's coming from a caffeine addiction. Then I want to talk about hosting for Shabbos in your house or in my house. So when we host for Shabbos, the rule is that my wife does all the cooking and prepping, I clean up the table, and I put everything away. Even though sometimes to fit everything into the fridge is like playing a game of Tetris, where uh, the soup, you have to move it, and you have to pull one thing out, and the dips go on top. But that such is life. So one of the things that we do is when the meal is over, I'm busy schlepping everything back into the kitchen. And then as a gracious host, I will tell my guests, hey, uh, does anybody here want a tea or coffee? And then people will tell me if they want a tea or coffee. And because this is the Shmuel Tenaz podcast, I have to tell you what's really going on in my mind when I ask anybody if they want tea or coffee. In my head, I'm thinking, hell no, please, nobody answer yes. We just served you a full meal. We started with wine. Then there was a fish course. Then there was a soup course. Then there was a meat course. Then there was a chicken course. Then we served fish again. Then we washed. We took a nap. We served again. Then there was some more wine. Then we brought out hors d'oeuvres. And now you want tea or coffee too? You know I'm just offering that just to be a hospitable host, but I really don't want to go back in the kitchen trying to figure out if we have any cutlery left for me to serve that to you. So the problem is that sometimes people actually do say yes. So here's my strategy of how to do that. First of all, keep it calm. Look like you're you're excited, like, oh my gosh, that's so great. We have tea or coffee. I'm going to go get you some. So you go back to the kitchen. What I do then in the kitchen is stall for time, like five, 10 minutes. Then I come back out and just see if that person who asked for tea or coffee is kind of looking at me longing, uh, longingly waiting for their tea or coffee. I'm like, oh yeah, the tea and coffee. You still want the tea and coffee, right? This time, hopefully a couple of people that told me before that they want tea or coffee will have dropped out by them. They're like, you know what? I don't, okay. So now we're left with a couple of people who are still insistent of having their tea or coffee. So what I do is I go back and I'm like, okay, here's the thing. Uh, For tea, I remember I mentioned tea. I thought we had a lot of flavors. We only really have black tea right now. That should knock off a couple of people. Then I'm like, the coffee that you wanted, remember I said coffee, we're actually just decaf right now. uh, And it's a couple of years old and the thing may have expired. If they're still insistent, I'll throw throw other things in like, just so you know, it's decaf. I'm so happy to get it for you. But... Uh, we don't have hot water because we forgot to plug in the hot water machine for Shabbos. So, but I could go from the, you know to the bathtub because we left the bathtub on uh, before Shabbos because just we bathed the kids and then we never emptied the bathtub. So, if you want, I can scoop out a glass of water there and pour some of this old decaf in there. And 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 you still want it? Okay, no problem. Okay, there's just one last thing I need you to know. Uh, so, in, in there we had a a, a jar break where we keep the glasses and the cutlery, so there will be a little glass on the bottom of your cup. Okay, no problem. You're okay with that too. And that we have no sugar. I'm just going to substitute that with flour. If they make it here, you know, God bless them. They, they deserved and they worked really hard. And the truth is that if you really want good coffee, just come to our show in the middle of the week 
and, and you're going to get great coffee. But th- at this point in the meal, I, I got to bring everything back in the kitchen, and I'm just trying to sound like a nice guy. So I called uh, a security guy to my house the other week, and I said, you know, build me a fortress. You know, we, we want this place secured and safe, and I don't want anybody coming in here. And so the, the person, if he walks around my property, comes back, he presents a plan of what, what it's going to take. And I look at this like, no, 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 you, you misunderstood. Uh, I'm not worried about anybody coming into my house at night. Totally okay with that. In fact, maybe we'll leave the back door open for him so he doesn't break anything, just come straight in. Where I want the security, though, in a fortress is for my bedroom. My kids come into my room at night to wake me up, so I'm bringing in a security company to secure my room. Whatever you can do there, put, you know, maybe some iron bars Maybe an additional alarm system. Maybe we get a little security guard who could bark right outside just to deter the kids from coming in. Obviously, if it's an emergency, maybe we give them a security button. But so we're going back and forth to see what sort of plans he can come up with. I do speak with other parents, and they also tell me that they have a similar issue with kids coming into their room at night. So I do have a little hack here. It's not so conventional, but I think for under $100, we can solve this problem. Here's how you do it. You get a weighted blanket for the kids. And you tell them it's something to keep them warm and secure or safe at night. But really, if the kid weighs 40 pounds, you get a weighted blanket that's 80 pounds. There's no way he's going to be able to get up from out of that blanket. And then you say good night, and you put the blanket on top of them with your spouse, and then they are pretty much stuck there until the morning. I think 2x the weight or 3x the weight if you want to be extra machmer, extra careful that the kids don't come into your room. Now, a small story that happened to me, I opened my mouth and said something inappropriate to somebody that I shouldn't have said that to. I do this a lot of times. And then I went and apologized to this person, and we are now friends. But there is a deeper story here, and that is that deep down behind the motivation of apologizing and making amends was the fact that this person that I apologized to is the proud bearer of a marijuana medical card. And this person is my backup to a backup in case I can't get hold of the regular people that I mooch weed off of or can't get off, get, can't mooch off the person who's a backup to the person I typically mooch weed off. This person is the third slot. This person has a medical marijuana card. And one day it may happen that the two primary sources that I mooch from may be out of town or maybe will start stop answering my calls because they realize that every time I call them after one in the afternoon, it's only about one thing and one thing only. So my point of all this is, is that as you can see here, cannabis is a great plant because it, it, it brings out compassion in people and it brought it out in me. And people ask me or have asked me why I don't have a marijuana card. I did have it right when I moved here. The thing is, you got to go to a doctor, you got to get a prescription, and you got to renew the prescription, and it's it's a process. And if I had uh, my my druthers and if I had everything really worked out and I was that organized, I probably wouldn't need marijuana to begin with. Uh, it, this is just because, you know, marijuana is for people who are just a, a little less organized and can't, can't really figure out what day of the week it is. Once you have to start dealing with a card and a doctor and a prescription and appointments, it kind of uh, loses all the fun there and the spontaneity of it all. 
So I do acknowledge that while I am doing this podcast and while you are listening to this podcast, like I said, you might be cooking in our kitchen, might be gardening. You could be ice skating somewhere. You could be climbing up a mountain. There, there could be so many things that you're doing right now while you're listening to Shmuel Tenenbaum's podcast. But I do acknowledge there that you're listening to this out of your phone and there's so much action coming out of your phone. So what I want to do is uh, give you permission right now to just quickly check your WhatsApps because it's possible like during the 12 minutes that I've been talking about, there's just like somebody posted like a really, really funny link. Or it's possible that you may need want to may need to check your uh, Instagram or, or Snapchat. Maybe somebody DM'd you something really funny, or maybe somebody liked a comment on a comment on a comment that you left somewhere else. Possibly also you may have gotten an email from work, or somebody may have sent you an email to your personal email inbox, which landed in the promotions folder in your Gmail account. And all of this you're gonna is piling up. It's like all this stuff is piling up. And by the time this podcast is over, you're gonna be all sweaty trying to figure out what did you miss. So what I want you to do is just take one second. It's okay, it's totally cool. Pick up your phone, just take a break, look at it. Let's make sure there's nothing there. Check the price of Bitcoin. Let's come back. Okay, we're good. Now I wanna to talk to you about the downsides of having a minivan. I love it. You can fit anything in a minivan including your wife and kids and suitcases. But there are downsides to having a minivan. For me, the biggest downside of having a minivan is when I have to do valet parking. And that is because all the young punks who are doing valet parking, for whatever reason, always want to take the minivan out for a spin. Like, you know what, to impress people. And I totally get this. This is a minivan. The windows go up and down. There is a gas tank. But still, like, you don't have to impress your girl to show her that you're committed to getting married because you're zipping around in a minivan. There are better ways to do that. You can demonstrate in other ways that you're a family man. So for all of you who feel the pain uh, of what I'm just talking about, where the valet is eyeing your minivan and is just waiting for you to go into that simcha so that he could tear out of that parking lot and zip up and down the I-95 with it, I feel your pain. Then I want to talk to you about, uh, and it's not really an ad for any business, it's just an idea that I had, and uh, potentially this is maybe an infomercial or the beginning of something great, and that is that we ought to establish a prayer group in Israel, and the truth is you can be in any country where there are any holy shrines. And it's just a group of people like monks or chassidim that will pray for you on demand. They already have this. But this is specifically, this is more niche. This is geared towards people who have a third-party dropship business or they're an Amazon seller. And what this group does is if your account gets suspended and there's nobody for you to actually speak with, this group will pray on your behalf. Now, they don't have any connections. They're not going to send a Jeff B. email because he's not even there anymore. But they're just going to pray on your behalf. So, again, if your account got suspended, you can't reach anybody at vendor. You just call up this prayer group. They go for you. And, again, this is a really a Jewish thing that I'm talking about from a Jewish perspective. But I think every religion ought to have a group of prayer people that if your account, because this is a platform, we now live in a platform world Everything that you have just exists on one or two or three platforms that you're completely dependent on. So uh, just a group of people uh, to, to, to leverage the power of prayer. The next thing is 
when I am looking for words of inspiration, I know that some of you may learn Hasidus or you'll read a book. For me, what I've been doing lately is I just go to my uh, this website now called Only Fan Brangens, and this is where a mashpil will sit there. Typically, there's no nudity allowed. They could be wearing a little less or maybe like a tighter white shirt, and they will give me the goods and tell me what I got to do. And this is a great place where, again, a mashpia could do a Febrangen, but everybody sees this. But if there's somebody who's really, 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 really wants a connection, I would think, again, go to uh, check out only Febrangens and you can get it. Now I want to talk to you about other traumatic experiences, uh, for example, these days, which uh, consist of going to a gas station and filling up your car with gas and just watching the prices fly up. So first of all, a couple of things that I'm noticing with my own shtick. These days when gas is like $4.50 a gallon, when I'm pushing the, you know, when I'm pushing on that lever, whatever it's called, and or pumping gas, I'm not pumping it as hard. I'm kind of tapping it gingerly because every little thing that comes out of it is 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 very expensive. So I've noticed that I'm, I'm kind of tiptoeing around that gas pump. The second thing is is these days I also will not fill up a full tank. I don't know. Maybe it's psychological, but I'll just put in a couple gallons. And so I'm stopping in gas stations, you know, every couple of days as opposed to a week or two. And that's, I don't know what I think is going to happen. Maybe there's going to be some gas stimulus that the the federal government is going to mail a couple of barrels to every person's house. I'm just hoping that things get better. And so that's why when I go to a gas station, I'm just going to only, I I typically these days just putting in like a half a tank or a quarter a gang. It's, It's a really, it's not so spontaneous anymore. It's more like, wow, what should we put in a full tank? Should we do three quarters in it? I'm not so sure. The other thing is where I think gas prices really freak people out, I believe so, even though there are so many other things that have gone, uh, gone up in value, is it's there are signs everywhere you drive. It's like a gas station. Every, everywhere you go, it's like promoting the price. Like when you drive past a supermarket, it's not like they have big signs outside that say, loaf of bread, $13. Because if they would do that, then people would just be flipping flipping out everywhere they go. Gas station is like the only place that I know of, only establishment in retail that kind of promote or promote uh, pricing right outward bound. And so that's why I think it has the biggest impact. So then we have to talk next about something highly controversial. It's going to annoy lots of people. And therefore, I'm so excited to speak about it. And that is, I believe Bitcoin is a complete scam. Why do I think that? And by the way, this is not professional investment advice. This is not advice. This is not even professional. This is just thoughts from me, Shmuel, host of the Shmuel Tendenhouse podcast. Why do I think crypto is a scam? The first thing is, I have a friend. He's also a family member, not a close family member, but close enough, like a family member, not like you know, a sibling, but in the family, let's say. He is a crypto enthusiast. And every conversation that I had with him in the last five years goes like this. Hey, dude, how's it going? And he goes, you get some Bitcoin? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to check it out. I get, did you get some Bitcoin? 
I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna get some. I'm gonna look, look at it. Send me some links. Do you tell me about it? it sounds great. Did, did you get coin? You got some coin, dude. You got some Bitcoin. And so there, there is a little, uh, to me, it just a lot of religious fervor around it. So that's the first thing where it just seems like, again, there's there's a cult-like aspect to it with not a whole lot of really talk or conversation about anything else. It's just Bitcoin. The second thing is, and this is really the second reason why I really, really believe that Bitcoin is a scam. And that is, I have to be honest with you, I have invested in Bitcoin on multiple occasions. And guess what? Each time I have invested money in Bitcoin, I have made money. And that is my proof, ladies and gentlemen, that Bitcoin is a scam. For anybody who does any co-investing with me or who does any business with me, I am one of the world's worst investors. And we're talking about specifically, let's say, in the public markets, stock, terrible. So when I am investing in an asset class that every single time I do it, I'm making money and it's liquid, something is up. Something just does not add up based on my flawed record. Somebody also told me that on Sunday they saw an airplane flying in the sky and there's a QR code because the airplane had a sign to it. And they take out their phone, they snap a picture of the QR code and Cash App was running a promotion that gave them a little coin. And that was a little Bitcoin. And so when somebody is dropping money from the sky, I think that qualifies a little hype right there. And again, it's not, I don't have anything really to base this on other than Bitcoin doesn't do anything and just uses up a lot of electricity to make. And I know people always say like, wow, what's the difference between, you know, it's, it's, it's very unique because they're not making any more of them. Well, I know sometimes I will go to Bagel Cove on Friday and they run out of chalas because they didn't make any more of them. But it doesn't mean that a challah should be worth thirty or $50,000. And then when you have any juxtaposition in the same sentence of Bitcoin and an NFT, that is a complete crock. NFT stands for no such effing thing, or this is not effing true. Any startup that you speak to or any company that tells you that they are expanding into an NFT, please let me know and I will short that company. Obviously, I'll lose money just based on my track record, unless, of course, it is a direct Bitcoin uh, investment, which again, I seem to kill it every time I invest in Bitcoin. Now we're going to get into a little marriage and relationship stuff. For the men listening, and I, and I am aware that women listen to this podcast, and that's totally okay. And uh, we love the women at the Shmuel Tenenos podcast. Obviously, the women that I'm referring to that I love is my mother listens to, to this. Shout out to my mom and, and my sisters who listen to this. Now, what I want to get into is what every, for the men, though, I want to tell you what every wife wants from you. 
They're not going to tell us to you directly, but this is really what they want from you. Two things. Number one, they want you to take them out to eat at a restaurant with a server. They don't want to go out to a restaurant where you have to walk up to the counter and bring it to the table. You got to take her out to eat, and it's got to be a server. The second thing is, she wants you to take care of your mental health. That's it. I said it. Every wife wants her husband to take care of the mental health because all issues that stem from a relationship are not the woman's fault. It's not a budget thing. It's not a financial thing. It's not a relationship thing. It lies squarely on the mental health of the husband. Guys, take care of your stuff. Whatever, whatever you need to do, whitefish, you can do cannabis. Just try not doing it during the day. And if it's during the day, please call me before you light up. You could do exercise. You can go to a therapist. You can go to a fake therapist on websites like Talkspace where they have somebody outsourced in a different country to talk to you about your mental health issues. Just take care of it. The other thing I want to tell the guys there, for those of you who have not been in therapy or really in a relationship where your wife will tell you what's going on, but I got to tell you what's going on here. And for the, the wives that are going to be a little disappointed for me disclosing what I'm about to disclose, this is something that they would read about in a book or hear about it on a talk show of some sort. Guys, here's what you got to know. There's a bank. I know there's a bank and there's not never enough money in the bank. That's not the bank that I'm talking about. There is a different bank. There is an emotional bank. You're worried about the finances. Your wife is monitoring that emotional bank like a hawk. So what happens is you make deposits in that bank. You're like, hey, honey, how are you doing? You get like 50 cents. The problem is that bank gets drained very quickly, and you have to fill it up. So a day goes by, and then the bank will just have fees that will eat up the fees, and you have to deposit more money into the bank. There's no carryover unless you can also have a savings account. So you have a checking account which is an emotional bank account, which is like checking. And then if you do really big stuff, you can try to put it into a savings account. So sometimes your wife will be like, the bank is empty, the emotional bank. And you could be like, hey, honey, I thought we had some things in savings. Now, there's a very little yield on things in the savings account. Really, the checking account is where, 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 where it is. Now, if you get into a fight and there's not a whole lot left in your emotional bank, what happens is this is now an overdraft, and there's going to be a lot of fees from, from the bank. And then also, if, you want, if you're not really making deposits, and then you want to go out with your friends at night, you are just now using your debit card. There, there, is, there is a bank. It's emotional. Be aware of it. Speak to your wife about it. Find out what your balance is, and, and constantly check into it. This week... I was at a bar mitzvah, and I was talking to somebody or a few people, and in the process, I took out my phone. I actually whipped out my phone, and I took some notes. And the person said, oh, is this about your podcast? And I told him, of course this is about my podcast. You think I'm just talking to you for fun? You think I'm engaging in conversation for social reasons? No, this is just a playground for me. All interactions that I've had since launching the podcast have just been to get material. 
you know, in fact, next week I'm, I'm working on my weirdo episode, and that's why I stopped right here, right now, to talk with you, to really get some more background for the show. At the bar mitzvah, there was a dessert bar, and there were baked goods there. Baked goods is definitely my Achilles heel when it comes to sweet stuff. There were these hot cinnamon buns. Unbelievable. They were mini also, so you can eat, you know, 10, 15 of them, which is the size of really like five or six full cinnamon buns. But because they're smaller on the intake, you don't feel as bad. I really loved them so much that when people were walking by or when I was speaking to people later on this evening, I was promoting those cinnamon buns. And so at the end of the day, I think I qualify as a Mazinus influencer. Like, if there's a great Mazinus, you let me know, and I will influence it out to the world. And now we talk about the fact that our days are numbered. I don't want anybody to panic, and I know that sounds very grim, especially since I believe that's what the title of this podcast will be. And the reason why I don't want you to panic and the reason why it's not as grim as it sounds is because our days are numbered. We are counting sphere right now. That's all. We're 26 days into it. Now, there are 49 days of the year that we have to count sphere every night with a bracha. You miss one day, you're out. There's no give backsies. You got during the day to make up for it without a blessing. You miss it, you're out until next year. You're out of the race. You're gone. We don't even want to look at you. But you got you to gotta, you gotta make it till the end. 49 days of the year, just so you know, on a Jewish calendar, there's typically 354 days in a Jewish year because we follow the lunatic calendar. Sorry, I said lunatic calendar. We follow the lunar calendar. That was just a Freudian slip. Now, for 13 plus percent of the year, Every night, you got to count the day and the week. You also need to know what sphere it is. The other thing that I'll tell you in general, which is amazing in terms of our days are numbered, is we also have not just the 49 days of sphere, but we also have the three weeks, which is another 21 days. If you add the 21 days to the 49 days of sphere, that's 70 days, approximately 20% of the year, which, by the way, no live music. And you got you to gotta grow a mustache and hair on the back of your neck. It's a custom that some people have started in different communities. Don't ask me why. So I do have two favorite pastimes for counting Sphira, which makes this entire thing worth it. It's worth counting the day and the week for 13% of the year. Again, nothing to do with the, the, 20, the 21 days of the three weeks or the Aserah Tshuva, which is the 10 days. So you got the three weeks, the 49 days, the 10 days. It's, it's a lot of days, but let's focus on Sphira right now. My two favorite things of Sphira Sa'imer. Number one, it's all around Shul. When the Chazan is up there and it's time to count Sphira, when he makes a mistake and he says, Hayyayim, and he says the 23rd, and it's really the 24th. 
My favorite part is when everybody goes, no, absolutely not. Nay, no, no, no. It's the 24th. What are you doing? It's the 24th. Get away. To me, that makes it all worth it. It makes being a Jew worth it. It's exciting. It's exciting. People are getting involved. It's in the spirit. The other thing is that, so that's my my second to favorite thing about Sphira because there's only two things. My my favorite thing about Sphira is if you have a chazan, but then he does myrav in the evening, but somehow the guy forgot to count Sphira one of the earlier nights. We don't know which night. And so what he needs is he needs a relief pitcher to come and do the bracha for him because now everybody knows in the whole shul that he was an idiot and he forgot to count one night. The worst is when he's got a relief pitcher coming in to do the bracha for him on the second night. It's like, dude, how'd you miss the first night? It's only the second night of Sphira. So I do think it would be great for shuls to, to, to implement a strategy, not a strategy, a policy, that if you need to bring in a relief pitcher to finish your sphere for you because you are not able to make a bracha because you forgot it, you need to explain to everybody what exactly happened. Tell us, you fell asleep, you were watching something, you got a little drunk, we just want to know it makes it a little more exciting in this whole process. Now, I've finished all the thoughts that I want to get into for this podcast. I will leave you until next week. Enjoy the interview with my friend, Adam. Thank you very much. Okay, here we are. How are you? Hey, Shmuel, how's it going? Amazing. So we are here now on the Shmuel Tenenaz podcast. And we are here with an esteemed guest and friend. His name is Adam Smith. Adam is the CEO of a company called Arbor Pacific. That's the holding company, uh, which is comprised of multiple brands. One is called Avitas. One is called Elevated. One is called Better. These are very popular cannabis brands, primarily on the West Coast, maybe going to the East Coast too, right? Yeah, primarily in Washington and Oregon, um, with expanding soon into California and the East Coast. Amazing. And uh, I forgot uh, that I should mention two things. Number one, uh, congratulations on your company recently being acquired by Holistic Industries. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, two, uh, full disclosure, I am a very insignificant uh, shareholder of that company. So Uh, there's no such thing as insignificant shareholders. (laughs) Yeah. Extremely helpful throughout the years of running this company with lots of insights and great, great advice and, you know, being able to bounce ideas off of you and. Yeah, sure. Comedy. Comedy. <laughs> comedic, comedic relief. Hey, you know, comedy relief is very therape- therapeutic, especially in the stressful industry of cannabis, right? It's, Completely. Uh, yeah. Completely. Um, so I, I have a, a list of questions here. And I uh, would love to get, get through them. Uh, an amazing story that you have, and I know it's just starting. So uh, let's start with, first of all, you have not worked all your life in the cannabis industry. How long, how long has it been since you left corporate and went into cannabis? 
Yeah, so I uh, I kind of jumped into the cannabis industry full time uh, in 2015. Um, prior to that, I had you know held various corporate jobs. I had worked at uh, Microsoft as a software engineer um, early in my career, right out of college, uh, and then quickly moved into product management when my boss told me I was good enough to get hired, not good enough to get promoted as a software engineer. Oh, which, that's uh, great. That's I always yeah, I always look back on fondly, uh, you know, at least he was straight up with me and told me I was never going to make it as an engineer, so I should do something different. Uh, so that was, uh, you know, that was good advice. So I moved into product management, uh, working at Microsoft, and, uh, you know, that's where I really feel like I kind of earned my stripes learning about all things product related, how to build products, how to market products, how to position products within specific markets, and really understand what customer needs and wants are and how to deliver a product to meet all those needs. And so right before founding, by the way, the company name you refer to as Avitas. Well, Avitas is the, the, the operating company that we have that's in Washington and Oregon. Um, it started okay. out, you know, really it started out only in Washington. Um, and, uh, you know, as all new startups kind of, I think happen, it's trying to figure out what to name your company and, how to get it off the ground and we just kind of were running up against a deadline to figure out a name and uh you know we just kind of like we had like a, a big smoke session hanging out in our little farmhouse up in arlington washington and we oh i've like, been there yeah you've been there right so uh trying to figure out what what we're going to name the company we had all these names on a whiteboard you know and we're going through and I was kind of like, all right, let's set some ground rules for how we're going to name this thing. Can't be like leaf anything. It can't be like marry anything. You know, we kind of got to avoid all the, the stereotypical stoner stuff. So let's come up with something clever. And, you know, um, if we can make it into a joke, that's even better. So uh, we were going through all, all stoned, having fun, writing all these names on. And after going through about 200 different iterations, we ended up with nothing else on the whiteboard because it was all crossed out for either being <laughs> stupid or too abstract or too uh You could have called, called the weed brand empty whiteboard. There we go. Empty whiteboard. That's a uh, plain white wrapper was actually one of them. So Okay. And so <laughs> who, who was the one that figured out that Avitas backwards is or Sativa backwards is, is Avitas? Well, so yeah, it was one of the, you know, we're just sitting there kind of thinking about other brand names. And I remember hearing all these just like, you know, uh, I don't know, guidelines for how to name your company or name a brand, you know, like it should have a hard K sound in it because it's, uh, you know, like Kodak or Coke, uh, Nike. Nike, all these different brands, right? They all have these really hard K sounds to make it really memorable. And then also remember hearing like, you know, the more you can like hide uh, kind of double entendres into it or whatever, the, the better it is because it reacts differently in people's brains, two different sections of people's brains to get them to memorize it. And Even now when you're telling me that, my brain is exploding. Yeah, exactly. So I just remember, you know, the old rumor that uh, Evian bottled water was naive spelled backwards. Oh, and nice. I, you know, I was like, oh, you know, maybe we play a little trick like that. What's Indica spelled backwards? And we're like, nope, that doesn't work. Oh, what's but Sativa spelled backwards. And I was like, Avitas. I was like, wow, that sounds a lot like Adidas too. So, okay, yeah, that kind of works. It's a play on words and it also kind of almost has this double meaning, you know, uh, so let's roll with that. <laughs> so that's kind of how we came up with it. And at, the, at that point in time, we had no idea, right? This is like 2000, beginning of 2014. 
So we had like no idea if like legalization was even going to fly, if the feds were going to let it happen, you know, how this company was going to evolve. So we're just like the brand and the company are the same name. Let's just get on with it and file the paperwork. So this is, you actually went, you jumped ahead a couple of my questions, but my question was when you guys came up with the name that Sativa backwards would be Avatas and that would be the brand. Whoever came up with it, were they stoned? But now we know the answer to that question. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Matt, copious amounts of cannabis were consumed when trying to come up with those names. <laughs> so uh, one thing also is like the, the job right before Avatas, like the last job that you had in corporate, you were, it was ESP, ESPN? Yeah, that's right. I was, I was uh, living in New York, working for ESPN. Uh, I was running business operations for their um, global digital advertising business, basically. So I managed uh, the digital advertising platforms. I managed uh, all the sales support teams and some, some contract negotiation and contract management teams. Kind of had a hodgepodge of different things that were thrown into my group that uh, honestly were kind of the catch-all that no one else in the corporate structure wanted. <laughs> so they just gave it to me. <laughs> and how did you, what was the, I'm so curious, like what was the motivation that you're like, hmm, this is ESPN. Now I want to pivot to weed. I mean, I've oh, you know, I've always been a consumer of cannabis ever since, you know, probably my sophomore, junior year of high school. And it's always just been part of my life. And I always was just very enthralled with the, the concept of it going legal. So when legalization was happening, the movement was happening around 2012 in Washington and Colorado, you know, it was it was exciting because, you know, I was a longtime consumer and was really excited about it being legal just from a consumer perspective. But then also from a business perspective, I was just fascinated with, you know, how the industry was going to unfold and how, you know, different compliance and different regulatory structures were going to impact how brands and companies could be created and evolve and market themselves, you know, to, to really build a stable, mature industry. So it was, it was kind of twofold, right? To being a consumer and then also just being really fascinated with the business opportunity and uh, wanting to be part of it. And is that when you moved to Oregon? Yeah, so, so the, rule, the law passed in Washington in 2012 and then it took like all of 2013 for the regulatory agency to get their rules published and how they're gonna go about licensing people. I think we submitted our application like at that very end of 2013, December, 2013. And then it took from December to I think June of 2014 for us to actually get licensed in Washington state to get up and operating. And at that point in time, I was, I was still um, working for ESPN, um, but I managed teams kind of all over the US and I had a team that was managed in Seattle and Seattle is where I grew up and is my home. So I still had a house in Seattle. Um, so I was, I was traveling back and forth between New York and Seattle quite a bit. Um, so after we got our license, I was kind of, you know, doing the ESPN thing, but doing the weed thing on the side for probably about nine months, you know, until we, you know, until we really could prove that the weed industry had a foothold uh, and that it wasn't going to just get shut down right after it started. And then after about, you know, nine months of giving, giving the Washington business a run, uh, you know, really looked at it and was like, wow, this is a real thing. We're making real money and this is a real business and we're building a real company. So I probably should dedicate myself full time to it. So that's when I, you know, packed up all of our stuff from New York and then moved to Portland to um, spearhead launching our Oregon business because uh, they were just announcing that they're going to, uh, you know, legalize in 2016. 
moved from their medical market to the recreational market in 2016. Are you um, allowed to disclose like approximately like what your revenue figures are annually? Yeah, so we did we did uh, right about 25 million last year in sales between Washington and Oregon. Amazing, and you guys are profitable as well, right? Yeah, we are. You know, that was always one of my really kind of driving philosophies around building the business was, um, you know, we wanted to be able to build a business that was stable and secure and could self-fund itself without having to rely on outside capital. Part of that was because of the regulatory environment that we launched in in Washington with uh, not being able to accept capital from outside the state and having to have equity owners live within the state of Washington. That really restricted the, the, the capital pool that we were able to go after. Um, and, and then also I just, you know, kind of just had a, a strong feeling that if we weren't making a product, uh, that we could sell at a price that people wanted and we could keep our costs down, then we didn't deserve to exist as a business, you know? Um, so unlike, unlike any other company, by the way, on on wall street today, which is completely different philosophy. Yeah, you know, I, which is which is really interesting, right? There's a lot of people who came in, raised huge amounts of money, burned money to try to get their product in the market, raised more money to keep the product in market, try to get market share, hoping for some catalyst at some point in time that will, um, you know, change the dynamics of the marketplace or change consumer behavior to where you know their business that their their products that they've been subsidizing for consumers for this entire time all of a sudden becomes profitable for them. I just didn't believe in that model, you know. I just always was very focused on producing a product that customers wanted, being able to produce it at a price and sell it at a price that that was, uh, you know, uh, affordable and attractive, but we were still able to make margin on to to secure our business. What an innovative thought. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Don't give product away, right? Like- Sell it for profit. (laughs) Uh, By the way, at $25 million, that's $2 million pretty much uh, per active listener that I have to my show. And so- I want to grow it to where it's a, a million per per user here. Um, and I'm not, I mean, obviously that's with my family. Without families, it's even a smaller number. So I appreciate you being here. Um, given given the stakes, uh, <laughs> right how, many shops are, how many shops are you guys in your carts? Oh, so um, in Washington, we're in probably 300 of the 400 and so shops that that are open. And in Oregon, we're in, you know, 400 plus of the 600 or so shops that are open. So we have really good broad distribution in the markets that we, that we operate in. From when, when you were um, made your pivot from corporate to uh, right into the cannabis industry, were any of the like straight laced, straight laced friends or family members like shocked and appalled? Um, you know, my family definitely wasn't because they they knew I smoked weed for a long time. So for them, it was like a natural fit. Uh, and I think for most of my friends, no. Uh, some coworkers were definitely a little bit like, "Wait, what? You're giving up this cushy exec job at ESPN to go start a weed company? That's that's pretty ballsy." Um, but uh, over time, you, some of the people that I have you know kept in contact with at ESPN have also just been you know very excited and also, you know, interested in investing in the company and helping the company grow and stuff like that. So it's pretty funny. What percentage of the business is um, carts, which is like the oils and actual versus actual flour? Do you guys still do flour? 
We do. Yeah. So our flower business in Oregon is probably about 50% of our business. And then in Washington, it's much smaller just simply because of our, you know, grow space that we had in Washington, um, which we are expanding. We actually have a new facility that's uh, opening up uh, probably September of this year. We'll be bringing it online. On behalf um, of the Shmuel Tenenhaus podcast, let's just say mazel tov to that new location in Washington State. All right. Thank you. Yeah, we'll have to have a blessing ceremony and get that thing open, right? Yeah, I'm happy, <laughs> I'm happy to, you know, to come there and make sure everything is good, inspect it, you know. Uh, yeah, so so that, you know, our, our we had a 2,000 square foot grow in Washington when we started. It was tiny, right? It was really, really tiny. So having that small of a grow really necessitated us trying to move into manufactured products in Washington. And we recognized that early and we made a, you know, an investment in that early and we were able to get out the gate kind of with refined products and manufactured products in Washington pretty quick, you know, and we're able to capture a significant portion of the market share in Washington with our, um, our cartridge business um, pretty early on and have been able to maintain that you know, throughout the years, which is, which is great. How many carts, do you know, like average, like how many carts, vape carts you're selling per month? Yeah. I mean, we sell, um, we combined, it's about 150,000 between Washington and Oregon. And, uh, you know, we're probably doing about one rune, about another 15,000 a month in Oklahoma as well. Um, so that's a lot of vape carts a lot of vape cars you know sometimes it's mind-boggling to sit back and think about how many people are you know smoking our product and getting stoned it's pretty funny I actually went to a, a Timbers game not too long ago and I think their capacity was like 22,000 I was looking at the stand I was like fuck we sell like five times as many of these a month I was like that's a lot of people that is, that is a lot of people <laughs> so it's pretty funny when you actually contextualize the number of people to like a real audience of how big it really is so it's pretty fun yeah, by the way, when you sell a vape cart, not necessarily is it one person per vape cart. Sometimes you can have multiple people hitting a vape cart. That's right. Yeah, parties, right? People, yeah, it's, it's interesting. But uh, I, for whatever reason, I never pictured you as a stoner. I don't know if it's just like, you've been like so calm, cool and collected during the process, like I've seen for the last couple of years. Maybe your eyes are not red. You may have like the eye droppers <laughs> or you just, you're not smoking during work hours. Because again, I, I did not, I have not pegged you as a stoner. No offense, but uh, yeah. you, you do a good job uh, maintaining, you know, a non-stoner vibe, but being a stoner. Right on. Yeah. I mean, I think my consumption, it just ebbs and flows, you know, kind of, you know, I definitely, I definitely don't consume when I'm at work. Um, I like, I like to be physically active and do things, you know, have something that I'm doing when I'm actually stoned um, or just, you know, smoking and sitting on the couch and playing some video games kind of thing. I don't really like to be super social around people. It actually makes me really introspective and kind of, you know, more antisocial than social. So um, it's probably why, you know, you probably just never, you know, big groups of people, I kind of get anxiety and like, kind of like, why am I here? I'd rather be at home. When my bag of Doritos playing some video games. You know? <laughs> so. do, you, do you feel that there's like a correlation between um, people who are, you know, v- working in the cannabis industry and are very particular not to get stoned during work and the success they see from their businesses? Mm. Um, 
Because I would think it'd be well, very yeah. I mean, I you know, I think early now, right, the industry has changed so much, right? Early on, it definitely was, you know, a bunch of, you know, people who were like, oh, hey, I can just get high all day. And like, this is such a great job. And it's like, it's just like any other business, right? Just because you work in a brewery doesn't mean you can stand around getting drunk all day. Like it has to, the business has to be well run. And, you know, you have, you know, you know, employee, you know, uh, safety concerns and all those other types of things that, you know, people can't be high when they're at work. You got to show up sober and do your job. And then, you know, what you do on your own free time is your own business, but you can't be high at work. Right. And that goes for everybody in the management and everybody on the floor working. It's just, it's still a business and we still got to run it. So. Yeah. Unless it's, we work. Yeah. (laughs) Again, I mean like work parties and after hour social events and, you know, I mean, overall it's, it's, you know, our, our employees and even in the community, it's a pretty tight knit community, you know? So like, you know, everybody knows each other, everyone hangs out together, everyone parties together. So, you know, it's it's still cool has inflation taken any has has sorry has inflation had any impact on wheat sales uh i mean i don't know directly but you can see the correlation between inflation going up and people and definitely you know overall market conditions flatlining or even declining versus last year you know i think conceptually it makes a lot of sense right like when there's stimulus checks going out people have more cash in their pocket people are willing to spend more money on weed and maybe try stuff that they wouldn't necessarily uh, buy for, you know, that's within their price range. So they're stepping up and buying more fancy weed or different types of weed that they hadn't tried before. And then when, when things start getting more expensive and you got to pay gas and, you know, all these prices are up, then you start to make trade-offs about what you're buying and you're, you know, Hey, maybe you don't need that $60 eighth. The $30 eighth is, you know, we'll get the job done for you. So might as well buy the $30 one and have more money to fill up your gas tank. Right. That reminds me when the stimulus checks were coming out, did you see a lift in sales? Oh yeah, for sure. I think everybody did. Right. I mean, the markets overall, right. People, there was lockdowns happening. People were staying home. People just had more time, right. That they had extra cash in their pockets and it was like, all right, Netflix and chill and smoke some weed. And what else is there to do? Yeah, on the inflation side, I was I was also curious just in terms of supply chain and everything costing more as a result. So I'm also curious, like, did the cost of weed jump like the cost of everything else with inflation? Well, definitely the, all the supplies that go into growing, um, packaging, you know, and then all the distribution costs have gone up. The you know, challenging part about the cannabis industry is that it's so price competitive in competitive markets that there really is no appetite from the consumers to pay more for our product. So we've actually seen, um, I would say we've seen prices kind of stabilize rather than continue to drop in the cannabis space because of inflation, but we really haven't seen any increases in costs or any of the costs from our supply chain costs being passed along to consumers. So, it so it's like cannabis is like the one industry in the world where it's pretty much insulated from any. Yeah, I mean, over time, right? I mean, we'll see over the next nine months to a year how long can companies continue to just eat those costs if inflation continues and the supply chain problems continue. I mean, you know, it's it's multifold uh, for the cannabis industry, right? I mean, we have packaging supply chain issues, right? We're a lot of packaging that's being produced in China is being tied up in um, um, 
you know, being manufactured because factories are closed because of the COVID stuff still happening over in China. And then there's the shipping backlogs with, you know, the ports just being jam packed for any of those goods, whether it's packaging or cartridges or whatever being shipped from China, you know, and then on top of that, you know, we have the fuel costs. So, you know, getting it delivered is more expensive and then delivering it to our customers is more expensive. Labor. Um, yeah. The labor costs are, you know, going up. We definitely saw, you know, issues with labor, you know, with, you know, we didn't, us personally, our company was not necessarily impacted by a lot of people quitting during COVID. Um, Cause generally I think we treat our employees pretty well and our, we have low turnover and have kind of made a great place to work for people. Um, but I know the industry in general has had a pretty high turnover rate with COVID and with, you know, people quitting the great resignation and all this kind of stuff um, happening, you know, cause if you're a minimum wage bud tender and you can sit home and make as much money on unemployment and do that. So um, why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> so let's say sativa, indica, all these strains, is that um, complete BS or do you think there's something to it? Uh, well, yeah, oh. I mean, scientifically it's BS, right? I mean, the, I think so much of the stuff that is being consumed today are ultimately all hybrids between, you know, what was additionally or originally, you know, land race strains or pure cultivars that are being grown in different geographic regions throughout the U.S. And now they've all been blended up. So, you know, you see a lot more people leaning towards like the indica leaning or hybrid or sativa leaning. And really what that has come to mean is really more of a marketing term of what the effects are, you know, rather than any type of actual scientific basis for the cultivar being named in indica or sativa. So, you know, if it's a, you know, a, a sleepy kind of chill couch lock strain, you know, people say it's an indica strain. And if it's a, you know, heady racy strain, people say, oh, that's a sativa strain, but you know, what yeah. is really? there's this thing called like, what is it? CBN, which is uh -huh. like, uh, which officially people use for sleep these days, or uh, that's more on the indica sleepy side of things. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. I mean, it's basically a degraded, you know, it's a stage of degradation in THC, that THC and CBG and breaks down to, uh, basically, as it gets old or is treated with heat, um, you know, the longer you leave your weed around um, or you leave your vape carts around or whatever it is, the THC and it breaks down into other subcomponents and CBN is one of them. Um, and CBN, I actually really like it. It's, it's a much more mellow, sleepier kind of foggy head feeling that you get from from consuming that so that sounds good that sounds yeah good. yeah so that's that's kind of what i like right it's like the smoke some couch lock eat some food fall asleep wake up and feel super refreshed and uh you know that's a that's a good vibe okay a few more questions here and by the way you're doing great ah well thank you i appreciate that you're welcome thank <laughs> you again for being here um, so a few things, how, how big, um, how big of a issue is banking in cannabis? Um, I mean, it's, it's still a huge problem. I would say that banking itself is not necessarily the issue now because most companies have banks that are through state chartered credit unions. So that issue was really a really big problem. You know, the first year or two years of the industry coming up when there was no one that would give you an account. So cannabis industry people were 
basically just utilizing cash and safes to make money. Now that's not happening. You know, 95% of all of our transactions are, you know, electronics, transferred funds or checks or whatever. The big issue is really on the consumer side at retail and how consumers are paying for their products and how the retail uh, industry is dealing with that amount of cash, right? Because consumers can't use their credit cards or debit cards to purchase it directly. They have to go to a cash machine, pull cash out, give it to the retailers. And then the retailers just have this cash management problem, right? <clears throat> the retailers have a bank to put the money into, but it's just that they accumulate so much of it <clears throat> that they have to transport it. They have to keep it secure. And then it makes them a target, you know, for theft and for crime because, you know, no one wants to deal with all that cash. Were you ever all cash? You know, in the, in the very beginning we were when we couldn't get a bank account. Um, yeah, it was, and it was scary. You know, it was like, it was stupid. We'd go drop off a bunch of weed and you're like, oh shit, we got a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of cash. What are we supposed to do with this? You know? And it's like, that was so normal for them though. Everybody was doing it. Everybody was doing it. Yeah. I mean, cause there was just nowhere to put it, you know? And it, like, we would go around and like, you know, smurf money orders basically where we'd go out and, you know, run to the 7-Elevens or plaid pantries or whatever it was and exchange cash for money orders. So we could send money orders to our like packaging suppliers. And I was like, we, you know, like have 10 grand and have to go to 10 different stores because they have a thousand dollar money order limit, you know, to get a money order. It was ridiculous. It was, it was comical, uh, but so ridiculous. Yeah. But now, you know, all those, all those things for, for again, 99% of the companies, you know, we don't deal with any cash. We don't no cash flows through our, our businesses because everything is just done electronically or through checks at this point. Is crypto a solution or that that'll never work? Cause I know some retailers were using some sort of mechanism for consumers buying things via crypto. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I there, I mean, like you know, there's like there was that one crypto called Potcoin or whatever that Dennis Rodman was pr promoting for a while, right? That was supposed to be the the industry's answer for 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 Bitcoin and transactions in the cannabis industry. I don't really know whatever happened to that stuff. I mean, conceptually, it seems like it should work, right? It seems like a perfect use case for something like Bitcoin, um, but you know, I haven't I haven't seen any retailers or apps really supporting crypto in the cannabis space or if they are like they, they don't have enough traction to really um warrant attention okay and also what's with what's up with the with the the skunk smell from <laughs> can you make it smell a little better we spray so that on. yeah we spray that on we actually you know milk the glands of skunks and then uh spray it on the weed to just make it extra smelly and potent so extra skunky extra skunky it's, it's like why does everybody need to know that i just was smoking on the side <laughs> of my house no i mean that's you know different cultivars have different terpenes right that build up their flavor profiles and some of the terpenes in cannabis you know just have that natural skunky smell some of them smell like more gassy or diesel and you know some of that you know or some of them smell more fruity and florally uh i personally love the like more florally smelling cannabis uh you know to kind of say yeah, it going. smells like it smells like a skunk that ran through a, <laughs> a bunch of flowers yeah exactly <laughs> so it's skunky but with like, a flowery edge exactly like pepe le pew you know carrying yeah. flowers whatever okay we're, we're we're nearing the end here 
So I want to ask you a question about advertising because that's your background. How big is yeah. the, 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 the lack of ad options on cannabis brands? Is that a good thing because there's less competition or is that a bad thing? Um, so I would, well, one, I mean, as a business owner, right, we want to be able to reach consumers with a message to be able to promote our product and to be able to build brand recognition. So not having advertising uh, in a scalable way for the industry is, is not great for our industry, right? We, we, we want to be able to market our products. Um, the patchwork of a regulation state to state makes that very, very hard to scale. And then also because we don't have operations in every state, it also makes it very hard to scale. So, you know, we're, if we're looking at, if we're talking specifically about digital advertising, staying away from kind of magazine or out of home stuff right now, but um, if we're talking specifically about digital, you know, we can restrict the advertising to specific DMAs or different metro areas or whatever it is, but the volume and the reach of those advertising campaigns really isn't enough to warrant going after that. Um, and then also because there isn't um, really good tools for um, direct-to-consumer type marketing where they can have you know, ads that directly deep link into a product page where they can buy the product and have it delivered to their house. Um, in some states, right? In Washington, that's not allowed. In Oregon, it's kind of allowed, but there's various patchwork of delivery areas. California is a much different story where you have much broader distribution, especially in the metro you know, Bay Area and then in LA specifically. But again, that patchwork of availability, the patchwork of compliance and regulatory stuff makes digital advertising really hard to scale um, and really hard to, to kind of prove any type of ROI um, directly. Tell me about it. I know also the networks, a lot of them don't allow it, right? So Google and Facebook, I don't know what, if their policies have changed. But yeah, no, I mean, they still don't allow it. There's, there's, you know, people who have gotten pretty crafty about how they kind of get around it and, but again, you know, the more, the crafter you have to be and the less direct you are with your marketing, the least effective it is, right? So like it kind of is contra, contra, counterproductive to what you're trying to achieve if you have to jump through a bunch of hoops and be crafty about how you're, you're using your advertising on these different networks when in actuality, what you want to do is get a broad basic customers, you know, for as cheap as possible to put eyeballs onto your, your product and your brand to convey a message like, that doesn't work if you're like, oh, come check out my t-shirts. And then on some third party site, you know, having an advertising for your actual weed brand. It's like, that's, it doesn't work, right? So. Yeah, I, I, I know what you're talking about. Um, okay. Um, uh, I mean, obviously the last question is uh, for, for the listeners of the show, can like, what, what sort of discount can the Shmuel Tendenhouse podcast listeners get on all Avatas? <laughs> yeah again another great uh another great conversation about regulatory stuff right like discounts aren't allowed in washington for example so we can't oh either, oh you can't even provide discounts or rebates or anything like that it's uh it's nonsense uh, okay incredible any any um last parting advice for somebody looking to get into either cultivation or cannabis brands um, yeah, I would say if you're, if you're going to get in now, definitely, you know, try to find a state that's on the cusp of legalization and try to get in and find a niche in that specific market that you can, you know, carve out for yourself and protect for yourself. Um, brand building is extremely difficult in this industry. Um, you know, there's, 
there's very little evidence that people are loyal to brands right now. There are some well-known brands that people know of, but having loyalty to specific brands is pretty uh, hard to prove at this point. And data doesn't really necessarily back up any of any of those assumptions. Um, so, you know, building a brand, I think is, is very different than building products and selling products. So, you know, my advice would be start an area where legalization is about to occur, find a niche in an area for a product where, you know, you have some expertise and can add value above and beyond what anybody else is and move fast to try to capture that specific little niche um, to, you know, one, make products and sell products that are profitable for you to do. And then two, you can add some value and try to build a brand kind of longer term. Amazing. Thank you, Adam Smith. Ed, uh, so what, what's your, yeah, what's your official role and title now? So I am officially the uh, executive vice president of products for holistic industries. So okay, wow. I'll be looking at, you know, all the product offerings across a uh, holistics network of states and they're in uh, 13 states, I believe now, or will be in 13 states by the end of this year. Um, so looking at all the products that we're offering, you know, from a product catalog perspective, looking at the individual markets, seeing how we can adjust product needs and um, our offerings within the state to really go after each individual market because every state is different. Every market is different. We really are operating in, you know, completely isolated, separate, legalized states rather than one cannabis market. So it's going to be fun watching that as that involves and as national legalization is on the horizon of how that all comes together and how those barriers break down and how we can start really leveraging some of, you know, the, the economies of scale that we can get by having multi-state operations, uh, importing, exporting, and utilizing manufacturing capacity in different states. Okay. Thank you again. I'm going to pause the recording now. All right.